The Mix Room with Genelec. Today we're welcoming producer, audio engineer, guitarist and songwriter Tim Palmer onto the podcast, who amongst many others has worked with Robert Plant, David Bowie, Tears for Fears, Ozzy Osbourne, the Goo Goo Dolls and you too. Um, we're very glad to welcome you on today, Tim. So you're in Texas at the moment, so you're in your own studio, are you? Is that what I can see yeah. behind you or is it a professional studio? No, no, this is my studio in my home in Austin, Texas. Yeah, it's um, a little, it's a studio. I, I had it built onto the side of the house so I can literally, you know, come in here in my uh, pajamas as I do most days and just carry on working. And I don't manage to disturb the family because it's all so soundproof. So it's perfect. Oh, great. No need to get dressed. Why bother? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> better. Um, so before we get into your career, were you always into music when you were a kid? Were you really focused on that side of things and saw yourself working in it someday? Yeah, well, I don't know if I ever saw myself working in it, that's for sure. Um, but I, there's no doubt that music had a, a big impact on my life. Um, I can remember, actually, the first time that one of the first um, memorable moments about connecting the dots between lyrics and music and stuff like that was when I was at school in Newcastle. And uh, we had a great music teacher. And one day he read us a poem and... The poem was actually the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So mm. when we sat listening, you know, it was just another poem to us and it was quite enjoyable. But when he got to the end of the poem and we talked about it for a while, he said, now, now listen to this. And he put the song on and the whole thing just came alive for me at that moment. I mean, it was pretty, pretty, uh, just, a, just an impressive thing to hear a song after you've just listen to the lyrics only you know what I'm saying yeah. it became this three-dimensional thing that was just it blew my mind really I guess as a young kid and then um, my parents had a lot of records um, my parents were in the television industry and my dad used to travel a lot and used to bring records back from Mexico and different parts of the world that he'd been working in so I used to come home from school and listen to a lot of music and I I just always had an affinity for music and uh, I I remember as well when I started to read books i I really enjoyed, obviously, like so many young lads, James Bond novels. But I used to always um, put on my album of James Bond soundtrack music in the background. So I was trying to basically recreate <laughs> recreate the feeling of being at the movies, I suppose, because uh, I've never been much of a reader and I prefer having the music there as well. I mean, that's the thing for me is when I go to a movie, when I hear the music, that's the thing that will put a tear in my eye. That really takes it over the edge for me. Mm, those are the moments in films that get you though you're right when the score really swells um it sort of heightens it all doesn't it it really does there was a, a an educational um workshop once about writing music for movies and they basically showed uh, a set piece where a man walks into a room and he looks around etc cetera, etc cetera. and they played the same piece of film with different scores underneath just to basically highlight the, the power and how important the music is. And it really did, you know, they obviously made very extreme examples. One piece of music was very scary and the, the pictures really, you did really feel uncomfortable. And then another piece was sort of like relaxing and it felt like somebody was coming home. And it, it really just did prove the power of, of how important the music soundtrack is to every movie. I know you're absolutely right. I'd be interested in seeing that example. I suppose you could apply it 
do anything though. I mean, imagine ET without that glorious score at the end. It just wouldn't hit as hard, would it? No, not at all. I was actually um, very fortunate um, in the early part of my career when I was an assistant. I uh, assisted for a record producer called Hans Zimmer. Oh wow! And, Incredible. Uh, and Hans, and this was this was before Hans had even um, gone into the world of movies. And he was having a particularly tough time producing this artist um, who will remain nameless. And um, I really enjoyed working with Hans. And he, I remember him saying, this is probably the last record I'll produce. I'm going to try something new and I'm going to go to Hollywood and I'm going to try and get into, into movies. And I, I'm very fortunately stayed in contact with Hans. We're not close friends, but sometimes when I do some work for the Recording Academy, I can reach out to him and he's been very generous. He gave me a score recently to uh, Braveheart um gladiator sorry he gave me the score to gladiator which i auctioned off for uh, music cares and and a guitar as well and uh, yeah he's just been a a great guy oh how fantastic what a great cause as well yeah interesting and um so when did you first become interested in working in the music production side of things where did that pique your interest i guess um when i first began to even be aware of what music production and recording was, was because I was in a punk band when I was about 18 with my mates from school. We were a band called Emergency Exit and we went in to record a little demo and it was just an eight track studio in Kingston in Surrey. And that was the first time that I saw how the process worked. And uh, I sat behind the console and listened to the music and I watched how the engineer did his thing. And I must admit, at that point, I realized that this was something that I would really enjoy. So I guess that would be the first time that I had the feeling that I would like to do this. Although at that time, I didn't actually believe that that would be a possibility. Wow, going all the way back there then. So um, how did you start to pursue it more seriously then or start getting into it as a career option then from that moment? Well, I was very, very fortunate. Um, as I said, my father worked in television mm. and on one particular show that he was making for Thames Television, he had a, a, a group, I don't know if you remember them, called Chiwadiwadi. And Chiwadiwadi were playing on my dad's uh, particular show. And he mentioned to me that they had their record producer going to come down to watch the show be taped. And he said, I know how much you love music. Maybe you'd like to meet this record producer. Mm. So I was very, very fortunate. And this gentleman named Phil Wayman, who is a legendary record producer, he worked with The Sweet and The Bay City Rollers and Mud and countless other great artists. Um, he came down to the studio and I was introduced to him. And um, he said to me, would you like to come and have a look at a professional studio sometime? And I said, I would love that. And uh, I went up to see the studio and he took me on a little tour and I watched different sessions being um, running. And uh, at the end of the tour, I was completely blown away with it. And I asked Phil, I, I just straight out said to him, look, how, how does anybody get a job in a place like this? What do you have to do? And he said, well, the way it works at the moment is you generally start as a runner, a T-boy, whatever you like to call it. Mm -hmm. They call them T-boys in England, but runners in America. And you basically clean the studio, set the set the microphones up if people need it, uh, make tea, make coffee, go out and get the food orders. And it's uh, that's how you start, right at the bottom. And I said to him, well, if there's ever the opportunity for me to do that, I would love to you know, be considered. And he said, okay, I'll take an, 
a note of the fact that you're interested and next time we need a runner I'll, I'll i'll give you a call and that was how he left it and fortunately for me uh, about six or seven weeks after i'd failed my a levels i got a a phone call from phil saying that they needed a new runner and would i come up and, and have an interview and talk to the, the staff and i did that and i ended up um, getting a job at utopia studios in um, chalk farm in london and uh I absolutely loved it. Oh, how fantastic. And after getting your um, your results, I'm guessing you weren't super happy about uh, what an amazing sort of time for you then. Yeah, I mean, I was very blessed to be in such a great studio because in those days, as you know, there was no recording schools. Right, yeah. Um, you, you learned by watching. Um, you were an apprentice in the organisation and, and you learned by the people that surrounded you. You learned from them. And uh, it was a it was a great studio, and there were you know very uh, big artists would come through. On my very first day in the studio, they told me to clear up and you know see what was going on in Studio One. So I went into Studio One and started tidying up and asked the room if they would like me to make them tea or coffee. And I realised that I was asking Stevie Wonder if he wanted a coffee. Uh, and uh, I made him a cup of coffee. And uh, yeah, that was pretty a, a pretty impressive start um, to my career in music that first day. I'll never forget it. Oh, agreed. And how does he take his coffee? Do you still remember? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I tell you what, though, what is funny is that, um, you know, here we are, you know, however many years on it is, um, at a, I was at um, a party at the Grammys a couple of years ago. Um, Clive Davis has a party before the Grammys every year. It's a pre-Grammy gala, and it's a it's a big star-studded affair, and it's, it's it's wonderful to actually be invited to that. I was invited because I am a trustee at the Academy, and uh, Stevie was there, and I was able to go up to him and say, "Hey, I don't know if you remember me. I made you a cup of coffee about forty years ago," <laughs> uh, and uh, he was uh, he was super nice, and we chatted, and uh, yeah, it was great to sort of reconnect with him after all these years. Oh, how brilliant. He strikes me as someone that would be very polite and say he absolutely remembers that lovely coffee that you made him. Yeah, no, he's he's just, he's brilliant. I mean, he's so fun as well. I can remember that, you know, he's, he, he, he uh, in the studio, I can remember he came out one day and everyone was playing pool and he said, I want to play pool. And they were like, I don't know, Stevie, if that's going to work out for you. And he said, come on, put the cue in my hand. And he had a go. <laughs> I think it'd still be better than me, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so I think we're going to have to talk about you mixing um, I Just Died in Your Arms by Cussing Crew, because that was a really big moment for you, wasn't it? You're about 21. It was the first number one single, correct me if I'm wrong, that you'd worked on. So what are your memories of that? Well, I tell you what, it was such a different time in the music industry. Uh, I, and the whole thing about working for or in a great studio and being a staff engineer was that artists in those days would book a studio because of the reputation of that studio and because of the sound of that studio. And um, if you happen to be one of the engineers, you would be trusted with their recording. Nowadays, people tend to bring their own engineer with them. They interview them beforehand and you have a producer and an engineer that come in and you rent the studios. But in those days, you could just book into Abbey Road or Utopia or Mayfair Studios because you knew that there would be great staff there anyway mm. and you didn't need to bring your own engineer. So having a job in one of those places opened up a lot of doors for you. And 
this is a perfect example. Uh, I was a, a pretty, you know, junior engineer and, uh, and a band had just been signed, Cutting Crew, and they were booked in to do some mixing. And I remember this, the lady who did the bookings, Annie, said to me, can you work next week? I said, absolutely. And she said, it's a new band. And um, that was basically it. I went in and I worked on a few songs with Nick, who was the singer, Nick Van Eed, and Kevin, the guitar player. And it was the three of us. And we mixed. And one of the songs was, I just died in your arms tonight. And I was just extraordinarily fortunate to be the person who had the opportunity to mix that song. Because when it comes down to it, as a mixing engineer or a recording engineer or a record producer, you are only as good as the music you're working with. And that was a great song and I was connected to it. So it was an incredible break for me. It wasn't my very first break, but it was certainly the one that, you know, put me on the map, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you must have a few now when you look back, but um, that's certainly one that stands out. Just when I looked at your credits, I mean, there are so many, it was hard to almost cherry pick a few um, to, to talk Thanks. about. Well, so. you know, it's funny because often breaks in those days, because of the hierarchy of the studio system, you could get an opportunity by somebody being sick and not turning up to the studio. And right. they say, can you, can you fill in? I did that on a, a session for Sting once I did a demo with Sting and I got that because the engineer's kitchen had flooded. And uh, on another session I worked on, the very first break I ever had was I was uh, the assistant engineer on the Kajagoogoo album. And the Kajagoogoo record uh, was being produced by Colin Thurston, uh, who had worked with David Bowie in his past. And he was uh, and Howard Jones. And he was Duran, he produced all the Duran Duran records at that point. And he was producing the record with Nick Rhodes from Duran. So I was just the assistant. So I would be getting the, the food runs and, you know, helping Colin. And Colin liked working with me because I tended to sort of try and think ahead to what he wanted so everything was ready before he could say it. And um, basically Colin got to the point where he trusted me enough to be able to leave the studio early, <laughs> and so did Nick, because they had more fun things to do, like go out to dinner with their girlfriends, etc. and they would leave the donkey work to me. <laughs> and, uh, of course, as a, as a young engineer, I didn't have a problem with that. It was a great opportunity. So I spent many nights um, doing guitars and lots of keyboards, as you can imagine, with Kajagoogoo and recording with them. And um, it all went very well. And when it came to the end of the album, uh, I'm sure you remember the concept of B-sides. They didn't have any B-sides for the singles. Mm. And Colin, Colin and Nick didn't really want to spend any time doing B-sides because they, they were sort of regarded as being less important as such. So they said, why don't you just do the B-sides with, with Tim, the assistant? And um, they said, great, okay, no problem. So I was given the opportunity to record the B-sides, and I did that over a couple of weekends, and I contributed some ideas to the B-sides. And at the end of it, I thought, I've got nothing else to lose here. I'm going to go for it. So I went up to the manager and said, hey, I've really enjoyed recording these songs. I feel I've contributed a bit. Do you think there's a possibility that I could get a co-production credit on it? And he said, absolutely, you deserve it and you can have it. So I ended up co-producing two B-sides and then the, the record label heard the B-sides and loved one of them and decided to put it on the album. So I'd gone from being um, the assistant on the album to producing a song, which was the title song of the album. And I you know, got a production credit on that. I got my first gold disc in the UK. And later the song was used... Um, 
in a big movie called 16 Candles, um, a big 80s movie, and it was the intro music to that movie. So it just shows you how, you know, opportunities can just come out of nowhere. Yeah, right place, right time, and don't ask, don't get, a double whammy there. Yeah, it's the, uh, it's the intersection of opportunity and hopefully ability mm-hmm. and um you mentioned um david bowie there in passing so we must talk about tin machine so this was 1989 correct and there's a lovely testimony on your website where david said uh tin machine was the best i could have done to solve my mid-40s crisis or crises um it took its own credo and strange cult following bands like helmet and pearl jam immediately took to our producer young tim palmer so wonderful words there so what please please do share your memories of working uh with david on this and how you approached the project and how this came to be wow yeah that was uh that was pretty an incredible opportunity to work with david bowie who had obviously likes for us all such a big hero of mine Mm. um basically david had made a lot of records in the 80s let's dance being the perfect example that had brought him a lot of success and um, he carried on making records after that in a similar sort of style. And to be honest, he wasn't really comfortable in that skin that he created, which is of being a pop star with mass appeal and having to do all the things that pop stars do, all the interviews. And he wasn't happy in that skin. So he felt that it was time to change it up. And that's what he's talking about, about his midlife crisis. He, he wasn't enjoying the making of his music, the process anymore. It was very polished and uh, he wanted to have some fun again. And I was just very fortunate that I was the person that he brought along to be part of that change. What happened was um, he started writing some songs with Reeves Gabrels, who was the guitar player who continued on working with David after Tin Machine uh, on quite a few records. He'd started writing and Reeves started looking for an engineer to record with. And he had friends in the British music industry. And one of the friends he spoke to was Billy Duffy from The Cult, who I had met through my work with The Mission and a lot of the sort of goth bands that I'd worked with in the UK. So Billy put in a good word for me. I found this out later. So um, cheers cheers to you, Billy. And um, I was called one day by David Bowie's manager and, and said, uh, he said, look, um, David would like to talk to you about working on his new record. There was no mention of Tin Machine at this point. So as you can imagine, I was completely freaked out yes. and waiting for this phone call. And eventually the phone rang and it was a, a very good call with David. He told me about the direction that he was looking to go in and he told me that he'd listened to some of the records I'd made, which completely blew me away. And he asked me which records I were enjoying, you know, did I like that he'd worked on? And I told him that at that time I was very much enjoying the Lodger album. And he said, well, that actually there's something in common with what we're doing there. So that could be very useful. And basically at the end of the phone call, we decided that we would go ahead with it. And I was to fly to Switzerland about uh, three or four weeks later to start recording at Mountain Studios with um, David and Reeves. So uh, you can imagine I was super stoked and the dates that he gave me were sort of 
branded into my head. I'm going to Switzerland to work with David Bowie on the September the whatever it was. And uh, a few few days later, the tickets arrived. And my big mistake there was instead of opening the tickets and double checking the dates, I foolishly assumed, never assume, it makes an ass out mm -hmm. of you and me, as they say, I assumed that they would be the same. <laughs> and uh, I can remember the day before I was due to fly, I got a phone call at my uh, apartment and the owner of the studio mountain, who was French, was Monsieur Palmer, why are you not here? <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? I'm not coming in till tomorrow. And he said, no, your flight was yesterday. You should have been here. And I just completely freaked out. I, I opened the tickets up and thought, oh, oh no. my God, I have never, never been late to a session. And now I've got the chance to work with one of my heroes and I haven't even bothered turning up. Oh, no. <laughs> So I had to get on the phone and I called David up and I explained the situation. I said how terribly sorry I was to muck everybody around. And he was totally cool. At, and he said, look, I live close to the studio. It's no problem. We're just working on a few things. Get the next flight you can and we'll see you in a bit. And he was fine. But of course, that you know, really, uh, really did freak me out. But I got to Switzerland and met David and got over my initial nerves and met Reeves and we started working on some sketches and before long he brought in uh, the rhythm section from Iggy Pop's band, Hunt and Tony Sales, who were two crazy Americans, out of control, funny, mm. um, boisterous, and they just wanted to play. They didn't want to talk and they didn't want to discuss things. They wanted to get into the room and play and we had the casino available and it was connected via tie lines to the control room. So I mic'd up the casino from high and low and close mic things and basically attempted to capture this new recording um, of David with this, which was much more spontaneous and, and not planned out and not overthought and was fun. And, and, uh, and it, was, uh, it was pretty scary because there wasn't many run throughs. <laughs> you had to get it right first or second time. And we recorded a lot of songs in Switzerland, had a lot of fun doing that. And then we moved on to um, Compass Point in Nassau, which was cool, um, except for the fact that um, the studio wasn't in particularly good shape technically at that time. Um, but um, it was nice to be in Nassau, I must say, especially for, for, for an English guy of like 21 or whatever. Mm. No, no, I wasn't 21, 26 I was at that time. So we recorded there. And that's when David came up with the idea of calling the project Tin Machine because he felt that it was a, a more of a sum of all parts rather than just his his input. Uh, I wasn't too convinced that that was a good idea, and I still don't think it was the best idea. I feel that people sort of looked over it a little bit because the idea of David Bowie being a part of a band didn't seem to make too much sense or be realistic. And... Um, they didn't take it as seriously as they could have done. But um, a wonderful opportunity to me. I learned so much about recording from Reeves and from David about not overanalyzing things, leaving things be, um, not oh, trying not to overthink, working from your instincts, just spending time with someone like David Bowie and, you know, listening to music with him and talking and, 
going to dinner. It was just it was just an incredible opportunity for someone like myself. And then we went to New York City and mixed the album at uh, Track Record in New York. And uh, once again, that blew my mind being in New York. Um, people like Iggy Pop popping into the studio and Yoko would pop in to see David and and uh, Brian Eno would pop in. It was pretty overwhelming for, a, as I said, a 26-year-old engineer. But, uh, but yeah, it was great, really special. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. Incredible memories that you must have of that time. And you've worked with, well, so many people since then and in between then. And so another one's Ozzy Osbourne. You've got a nice testimonial from him where he basically said it wasn't for you. There would be no album talking about Down to Earth. So um, what what was the deal with that, uh, about your patience he mentioned in particular? Well, I think the problem that Ozzy had was that the last album he made before I got involved with, he really didn't have a good time making it and he really was not interested to be honest to make another album so part of my role or my job was to convince Ozzy and to make an album with him and as you know when you're a record producer it's a well particularly back in those days where the music industry was more about being face to face now a lot of stuff is done through the internet but Back then, the way that you related to people and the way that you listened and the way that you were was the, you know, was the reason that the chemistry between two people could work. And the chemistry you may have may be right for one artist, but completely wrong for the next. And I think that the producer that had worked with Ozzy before is, is an incredible record producer and has made some amazing records. But obviously, their particular personalities didn't really hit it off. So my job was to try and convince Ozzy to make another record. And he was changing the way that he wanted to make this record. He had generally uh, co-written a lot of the songs himself with Zach Wilde, his guitar player. And this album, and this was decided before I got involved, um, that album he wanted to use outside songwriters. So the initial part of the job was going through a lot of material that was being written from all sorts of sources, from... Um, the guy from Offspring had written some songs. Uh, Mike McCready from Pearl Jam had written some songs. Um, Rob Zombie's people had written some songs. There were songs coming in from everywhere. And uh, we had to pick the songs that we wanted uh, and we felt would be right. And the sort of music producer that I am, you know, I've always felt that it's not my record, it's their record. You know, mm. it had to be, this had to be something that um, Ozzy felt good about. And some of the decisions I had to make may not have been the most popular with some of the band who had used to had been used to writing and and uh, being more part of the creative process. But this was that was not my decision. That was something Ozzy wanted to do, and I wanted to help him do it. So um, we gathered a, together a lot of songs. It was there was a lot of driving over. I lived in the in the San Fernando Valley in Studio City. I used to drive over to to Beverly Hills, to Ozzy's house, try and find him and play him songs and get him excited. And you, we all know what Ozzy's like now because we've seen the TV show. But yeah. um, at that time, the, you know, in my head, you know, the Prince of Darkness was a very different figure. And it was only when I got to know Oz that you realise he's just a lovely guy, great fun, very funny. And I think the fact that we were both British was definitely a plus for him, um, because especially after going through the last experience he'd had, 
because we would laugh about Monty Python and and the two Ronnies and you know just crazy dad's army shit that, that we all we grew up I mean obviously Ozzy's obviously older than me but we would laugh and laugh and and, and quote Monty Python to each other and I, I could get him in a good mood so we were off to a, a really good start and uh, and then unfortunately Zach Wilde decided he didn't want to be in the band they had some sort of falling out so that was when it started to get really tough because I was under a lot of pressure to make the record and I couldn't stop. So I carried on routining and rehearsing the songs that we were doing without Zach. And that meant me um, stepping in to play guitar and a very average guitar player I am, but I was, I was good enough to be able to, to, you know, run through the songs and rehearse the band because it was the mm -hmm. bass and the, it was the bass and the drums that I wanted to get in the right arrangements. So it didn't really matter what I was doing. I was just there to just mark the songs. So I rehearsed with the band on my own. And I, and at one point I got actually Reeves Gabrels in from David Bowie's um, band to come and play some guitar. And, and he was great. And he played some great solos and that. But it just didn't work out, um, him being the guitar player. Because they started to talk again with Zach and... Ozzy made up with Zach and just in time for when we were starting to lay down tracks at A&M, Zach decided that he would come back in. So it was perfect. So I was able to get the rhythm tracks down and then work with Zach on my own and do the guitars. And yeah, we had a lot of, uh, a lot of fun, a lot of, took a lot of coaxing to get Ozzy to the studio, but once he was there. I didn't know what you were going to say then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's really amazing. I mean, that voice, he, he, the, the thing with Ozzy is that he has this ability to sing a song and he'll do one pass of it and you'll think, okay, well, that was pretty good. There's a few bits that pitchy-wise, that's a little sharp, that's a little flat, mm -hmm. but okay, that's pretty good for start. And then he, he's, he says, Let's, let me do a double track. And when he does the double track, I don't know how he does it, but it, he has this chorus effect where he may have been sharp on the first track, but he's not on the second. So you get a nice, a nice chorusing effect. And then the third track is the killer. You put a little mix in the third track and then suddenly you have that Ozzy Osbourne sound. And as you know, it's, you know, to be a, a, a successful singer, uh, it takes a lot more than just having a good voice and being able to sing. You need to have a sound. Mm. that's recognizable something that's unique something that people want to listen to and Ozzy most certainly has that and David Bowie most certainly has that uh, they have voices that you know immediately when you hear them and you think you know that's that's David Bowie that's Ozzy Osbourne that's Robert Plant that's Leonard Cohen that's Bob Dylan they're the sort of singers that I uh, you know love to listen to um, I'm personally not a fan of the theatrical sort of acrobatic singing mm -hmm. that you get in American Idol and those shows, it just leaves me a little cold, to be honest. But, you know, you appreciate their ability, but I don't really care for it. Yeah, not for you. Well, how does it feel to have been part of such um, big records at the time and to have contributed to uh, this long-lasting legacy of these classic artists? Well, it's strange now because as you get older, you, you look back and I think like, like anything in life, um, 
sometimes when you're in the moment, you don't realize how special it is. And mm. it's when you look back at it, you realize how fortunate you were and how great it was, but it, it takes distance. And, you know, where I am in my career now, um, I, I look back and I realize that I have been very fortunate. I have had some incredible opportunities and, uh, yeah, it's been uh, pretty special, I must say. And the funny thing about the way that the music industry has changed is that when I was making records in the 80s and 90s, you could make a record and it'd do okay. And you'd, fall, you'd never hear from the band probably again, and that would be it. But now with social media, you can stumble across a, a page about an album that you may have worked on, and you suddenly realize how important that record was to a group of musicians and how they actually really did appreciate the hard work that you did but at the time you would never have known that but now you can you actually get emails from people asking you about records that you didn't know people even cared about at the time so it's uh, it's quite it's quite incredible and the you know sometimes projects come from the strangest things like i i ended up working with tears for fears with roland orsbell because he liked the sound of the Tin Machine record, which to me seemed bizarre, but that's all good. So that was a great opportunity to work with that. And um, my wife is like a huge Guns N' Roses fan, and she always wants me to try and get tickets. And a few years ago, I noticed that the guitar player from Guns N' Roses, the, aside from Slash, is a guy called Richard Fortis, who's an insanely good guitar player. And he commented on something about um, the mission and wrote to me about the Mission albums. And it turns out that when he was a young guy uh, learning to play guitar, he loved uh, The Mission and a lot of the records that we made. And he wanted to ask me about certain guitar sounds and how we did them and how Wayne was. And anyway, we became friends and um, I now get great tickets to go and see Gun N' Roses. <laughs> and, nice. and Richard, Richard, uh, as I said, has become a mate and he he produced the Psychedelic Furs album that I was very fortunate enough to mix last year. And, uh, you know, that just shows you how all these things are strangely interconnected. Because at 18, I was going to the Lyceum in London to see the Psychedelic Furs, always loved them. And then here we are in 2020 or whatever it was, 21, when I mixed that record. Um, and uh, I'm working with Richard and and uh, managed to, to work on an album by the Psychedelic Furs. So all good with me. How about that? And I, I know about the Psychedelic Furs, so you mixed the uh, Made of Rain album, and that means that you have had top 10, al- top 10 albums excuse me, in the UK for five decades. So that's quite the achievement as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's great to make you feel really old as well, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> no, 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 no. Just very experienced, experienced. I know, five, five decades. I mean, it makes it sound like, I mean, I'm not 60 yet. I'm not 60 till next year. But it, it was, yeah, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and two, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Really great. Incredible. And uh, also, uh, <laughs> so it's funny, isn't it? So there I, am, I mix that um, record for the Tactic Furs. And I also do a lot of mixing for an American producer called Larry Klein. And he was producing Cliff Richard. So that same year, I had a top 10 album with Cliff Richard. And I never thought I'd ever work with Cliff, but. We, it was a great record. We had a, there's a fantastic single on it called "Falling for You," and um, yeah, that uh, that that uh, that's one of the nice things about where uh, my career has ended up is that I am able to 
work in more than one genre. And it was, it was definitely something that I decided that I wanted to try and do because um, I wanted to not get stuck in grunge or goth or, or something like that, because, you know, you get tired of doing the same sort of music. And I've been very lucky to work with jazz records and tears for fears and Sepultura and classic artists and young artists. And yeah, I'm, that's one of the best, decisions I made was not get stuck into one area that's for sure Mm, and it certainly sounds like you haven't by the diverse range of artists and bands that you've worked with so yeah congratulations on that because it it must be nice to dip into different things like you say not just get known for one thing or almost get stuck in a rut of working with these more rocky acts that people might just associate you with at first yeah because you you learn so much from each genre you learn from the music you work from uh, working on and then hopefully if everything goes well you can bring something to the table because you've worked with other genres of music that maybe they hadn't thought of i mean at uh, at the moment i'm making a blues record with a girl called jackie venson from austin and it's really organic and just bluesy and i've never done a blues record like this before but it's come out great i'm also um working with a metal type rock artist from los angeles i'm doing some prog rock from India, uh, I'm mixing a disco record, and I'm going to do a, another prog rock record from an Australian band. So you know, thank thank the Lord for the internet being able to send music, and also for uh, for the ability to be able to jump across into these different genres. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the things you mentioned earlier, your role at the Recording Academy. So how did you get involved with that? What what does that involve and what have you been working on with them recently? Well, I, I think like so many people, um, I just thought the Recording Academy was the Grammy show, to be honest. And uh, I was never really, you know, that excited about the idea of joining because I didn't really know what they did. And Back in 2002, I think, something like that, uh, I worked on uh, All That You Can't Leave Behind with U2, and I mixed quite a few songs on that album, and it actually um, was nominated for Album of the Year, and Beautiful Day won uh, Record of the Year. And because I'd been involved in that album, I was given automatic membership. So I became a the, part of the Academy when I lived in Los Angeles, and still didn't really feel part of it particularly. And it wasn't until I moved to Texas many years later. Um, I've been in Texas now for about 12 years. But when I got here, uh, I was asked to become part of the Texas chapter. And uh, I started to go to more events and I realized, hang on a minute, there's more to it than I I thought. Um, Because the Record Academy represents performers, songwriters, producers, engineers, all music professionals, really. And it basically tries to keep music part of our culture. And, you know, it rewards excellence and music's history at the same time. But also, we go out and we do a lot of advocacy work. And that's so important now with streaming and trying to get a decent fucking cut of Spotify and and getting some sort of laws in place to protect you know, the income for future producers and engineers, because they're not going to have it like I did, where, you, you know, you, you work on a, an album like, I don't know, Pearl Jam or something, and it sells millions of records. You could make some serious dosh, but nowadays it's really hard for 
engineers and producers to actually make any money. So being able to go into these lawmakers' offices and explain to them what's going on is, is incredibly important. And also the one of my favorite parts of the Academy is the charitable wing Music Cares. And as you know, in America, we don't have National Health Service. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of musicians don't have any health care. Uh, they're fine when they're out gigging and until everything goes horribly wrong and they end up with whatever it is, some horrible illness or have, can't work. And then they need some help. And Music Cares is able to provide support and money to get these people to doctors and to get them looked after. And, you know, even their families, it's Music Cares is not just for members of the Recording Academy, it's for every musician and even sometimes their wives. So it's a very important um, organization for me to be involved with because I've always believed that I've been so, I've been so fortunate uh, with working with so many great artists and without any of these artists and particularly their songs, I wouldn't have a career. So it's the very least I can do is to try and do something in return and give back and it makes me feel good and I enjoy doing it. And uh, I, I've done a lot of, um, raised quite a lot of money for, for Music Cares with auctions. I, I, one of the things I did during the pandemic was I got a lot of producers like Steve Lillywhite and, and Larry Klein and Tony Visconti, who did all the Bowie albums and Hans Zimmer and people like that. They would offer their time in a Zoom call and we auctioned those off and people paid a hell of a lot of money to talk to someone like Tony Visconti. So that money went to Music Cares and then, uh, I got a, uh, I got a, a guitar from Robert Plant and Tony Iommi, who they both signed, and that generated a lot of money for the uh, auction. And uh, as I told you before, Hans Zimmer gave us his uh, score for Gladiator, mm. and I got a guitar from Willie Nelson. And, and you know, it, it's just it's it just makes me feel better about everything when I can when I can do this, you know. Yeah, that's brilliant. Very admirable and nice to be able to give back, like you say, especially considering what everyone's been through, particularly in the music industry over the last year and a bit. So, um, yeah, I can definitely see why you were drawn to being part of that. Um, and um, so on to your studio then. So I know that you're a long-time Genelec user, aren't you? You recently upgraded to the 8341 monitors from the One series. So um, how long have you been using Genelec and why did you go for those ones for your own space? Well, I've been using um, Genelec monitors for about 30 years now. And I have the same 1031As that I had all those years ago. The reason I know this is when I was talking to Genelec recently, they told me how to get the serial number and open up the back. And we found out because I said, how long have I had these for? They said, open up the back. So I've been mixing and I still mix primarily on my 1031 Genelec monitors i added to them with the smaller journalex recently because i um i work a lot with a band from finland called him and him are no longer but vila valo the singer is still making music and he uh and so are the other members of the band i must say they're in a band called flat earth but i work with both of those artists and vila in particular has a studio set up and uh Genlec, of course are finnish and uh, he ended up with the smaller speakers in his studio and decided that it would be really good singers were mixing from, you know, two parts of the world and sending files back and forth if we're hearing the same music the same way. So I have an identical set of speakers that he does. And um, it's worked out really well for me. And to me, they've retained the, the, the thing that I like about Genlex. And in fact, I find when I flick between the small and the big ones, 
there is definitely some commonality that I enjoy. And I've, you know, I've thought about trying to replace my 1031s and attempted to do it a couple of times, but I, I just keep going back to them because that is my point of reference now. Uh, it's hard. To, I mean, any speaker is just a point of reference, but I know those speakers inside out now and I feel very comfortable. And when I haven't got them around me, uh, I get very nervous. Uh, I used to have them shipped over from England to LA when I was still living in the UK in a flight case, but now they sit comfortably on their little stands. And now I have my own studio. Of course, it's even easier because not only were you battling with speakers to get some sort of consistency, you also were putting those speakers into a completely different acoustic room. So there was always still a, an element of chance. But now I have my same room and my same speakers. I really know where I stand. And uh, yeah, my history with Genlec is, is a really good one. I'm very happy with it. Mm, it certainly sounds that way if you've had them for such a, a long time, <laughs> like you say, even had to check the serial number to, to know how far you go back with them. So uh, what, is, what is it about them that suits your way of working other than making you not nervous, which is very important, of course? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that I find that a lot of monitors that have been created nowadays, to me, when I play music that I know through them, immediately I feel like I'm listening to a digital recreation of the sound if that makes any sense i've because i've grown up in the analog world and with tape uh and and i'm not a luddite i'm not one of these people that have to use tape i love pro tools and i love plugins and stuff but i like to hear things sound a certain way so i'm always chasing a certain sound but generic monitors to me i i never found them too harsh they there's a certain musicality that they have uh, and as I said, it's a familiar musicality. And I find that if I was mixing through some of these modern speakers, I'd probably end up making very dull sounding music because I would be wanting to, you know, round off the high end because they're sort of very clinical uh, and surgical around certain frequencies. And it just, I don't know, there's just a roundness and a musicality that I like. But I've still got, I added a, a subwoofer to my 1031. So I've got the low end now that may be missing from bigger speakers. And uh, yeah, it's it's all good. Good. Glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear they fit into your um, studio world so effortlessly there. Um, so what about the rest of the year, Tim? What have you got coming up? What are you working on? What's going to be keeping you busy? Well, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm just finishing up working on Jackie's Blues album. That'll be out soon. Uh, Jackie Benson. Check her out. And uh, I've just finished one track on um, this disco record, which is also Austin based. And I've been working with a singer called Kelly Dowdle, who's an actress as well from New York. That's what I was working on before we jumped on the call. Okay. She's writing some new songs. And, and then I'm going to go into the butterfly effect from Australia, which is prog rock. And, you know, just, just keep, uh, keeping busy. And I'm hoping to escape, uh, to come back to, to Blighty on, in September, because I haven't seen my family for, oh, oh, ages since, you know, since the pandemic began, I managed to, to sneak back uh, on a flight to see my dad and surprise him on his 90th birthday. And I caught a, a flight back to America about two days later and they shut everything down mm. just then. So I literally got in and got out just in time and I haven't been back since. So I'm really looking forward to coming back to England to see, I have two daughters from my first marriage. I'm going to see them. I'm going to see my, my dad, my sister, you know, I, uh, all the family. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. 
Okay, well, that's good. I'm glad you got to see your dad as well just before everything shut down completely. It's been a long time, hasn't it, for people separated. So, um, England, I speak on behalf of England. We welcome you back with open arms in September, Tim. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Where's home for you when you come back or where's your family base? You London? Yeah, well, my... um... My parents still still live in the house that I lived in. They moved in in about 1972 or something like that. And it's in um, a place called Worcester Park in Surrey. It's very close to Epsom, uh, yeah, very yeah. close to Yule, you know, so it's uh, it's very much um, the Surrey suburbs. Lovely, lovely place to be. Okay, well, I very much hope you can make it back there then in September, Tim. Um, I think Thanks. that's a lovely kind of note to end on. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. No, it was, it was lovely to talk to you, Alison, and, and thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, thank you for your time. Um, well, enjoy England in September, Tim. I will. You take care, mate. <laughs> okay, bye then. <laughs> All right, stay safe. Bye. You too. Bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.